Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week we discuss the hotly contested and important question of net neutrality. On December 14th, the Federal Communications Commission is scheduled to vote on whether to repeal the Obama-era net neutrality rules. Supporters of net neutrality argue that repealing the rules will hurt consumers and challenge First Amendment values. Opponents of the net neutrality rules argue that they're a classic case of government overreach, stifling competition and innovation on the internet. Joining us to discuss these important questions are two of America's leading thinkers on technology and communication law. Gus Hurwitz is Assistant Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Space, Cyber, and Telecom Law Program at Nebraska College of Law. He's testified before the Senate uh, on important questions, and his work has been cited by the FCC in its orders. And Travis LeBlanc is a partner at the firm Boys Schiller Flexner. He previously served as the chief of the FCC's Enforcement Bureau where he spearheaded hundreds of enforcement actions involving consumer protection, competition, and compliance. Gus, Travis, thank you so much for joining. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jeff. Pleasure to be here with you. Wonderful. Well, let's jump right in. Travis, you served at the FCC under President Obama and were at the center of this debate. Let's begin by telling our listeners, please, what is the principle of net neutrality? Hey, so... The principle of net neutrality is fundamentally that Internet service providers should remain neutral among all the traffic that, uh, that um, uh, on the Internet. Um, and that is, they shouldn't be able to decide which websites, applications, and services consumers can visit. They shouldn't be able to decide to speed up access to some websites, applications, or services while slowing it down to others. They shouldn't be able to uh, charge um, some websites, applications, and services for access to the ISP's customers. In other words, they have to remain neutral. Uh, this is fundamentally the same principle that we've had with sort of basic voice telephone service for many years, right? Your ISP or your telephone company does not decide which phone numbers you can dial and which ones you can't. It doesn't decide when to um, make you wait a little while longer to get through on a call. Uh, and, and so net neutrality applies those fundamental principles of non-discrimination among websites, applications, and services to the Internet. Thank you so much for that. Gus, anything to add to uh, that definition of net neutrality? How would you define it? So I will build on and critique that definition. One of the important responses is that the Internet is a much more complicated network than the traditional telephone network. And no matter how you design an Internet network, you are going to have prioritizations. Some services are going to have better performance than others, and this has nothing to do with how the ISP might interpret the meaning or social value or profitability of different types of content. They need to make design decisions which are going to preference some types of content versus others. 
there are also questions of innovation effects and how different ISPs' decisions about their business relationships might facilitate the development of different types of content or delivery of content to users. And you also, to build on the example of uh, prioritization of phone calls and paid prioritization in particular, we've always had on the telephone network things like toll-free calling where users are able to make free calls or receivers of those calls, the so-called equivalent of the edge provider, is able to get some preferential treatment on a paid basis. None of these are going to be perfect analogies. This is a very complicated issue. And the very concept of net neutrality, what the term means, is a hotly debated uh, topic in and of itself, which I'm sure is going to make for a fun and interesting uh, next hour or so. Great. Well, that's a great way to begin. And let's begin by concrete examples of why supporters of net neutrality think that it matters. Uh, when net neutrality was first introduced, the claim was that uh, it was the most important free speech principle of the Internet age because it prevented a provider like Comcast from discriminating against BitTorrent, which was a competing file service that uh, challenged one of its own uh, file service providers. And as a result, people were unable to use BitTorrent to download barbershop quartets of the King James Bible. Uh, Travis, is, uh, can, can you make, uh, is, is that the classic example? And why is it that supporters of net neutrality think that it protects First Amendment values? Yes. So I think, generally speaking, um, when supporters, generally speaking, um, the Internet today is the public square of the 21st century. It's where uh, everyone uh, goes to communicate their ideas directly to the public. And in the public square, using that analogy, uh, the thought process is that all views should be permitted to be heard and that uh, no um, entity should be able to decide uh, which views are heard and which ones aren't. Um, they should be indiscriminate. And that encourages the proliferation of multiple diverse views and perspectives from uh, those who, you know, who seek to communicate their ideas. And to the extent that we allow some companies in the United States, namely our Internet service providers, to convert the public square into a, um, a, a, a commercially or an auction-type uh, space, there is a concern that this uh, will harm uh, the free speech uh, rights of of Americans. Thanks so much for that, uh, Gus. Well, well, there was one response that is common is that these free speech claims are hypothetical; that it's hard to point to particular examples of them. And when it comes to discriminating against competing providers, sometimes it might make sense to charge Netflix more than Hulu because they use up more broadband. Is, is, uh, can you spell out the response to the claim that net neutrality is important to protect First Amendment values? Absolutely. So net neutrality is related to speech in many ways. You have the question of allowing users access to the public square, to these forums where discussions are uh, uh, engaged in. You also have 
the question of facilitating access to those same squares. That is, making sure people have access to the networks that get them uh, connected to sites like Facebook or uh, YouTube or any other uh, uh, edge provider service that might be created. Now, things get more complicated when you think about this in dynamic terms and realize that we are not yet at utopia. We're not yet at the endpoint where all the possible speech that we want everyone to be able to engage in exists and is uh, being engaged in. So to take uh, two examples that are important in the net neutrality discussion, you have the question of closing the digital divide. You use the example of is Netflix, is high definition streaming video going to, what effects is it going to have on the rest of the network? If we say that ISPs need to build their networks in ways that support unlimited access to Netflix, that's going to increase the cost of building those networks. Well, if we're concerned about building more on-ramps just to get people connected to the basic uh, services online, basic forums, basic discussion groups, basic Facebook, basic government information, basic job search sites, even basic uh, standard definition streaming video, saying that networks need to support non-discriminatory high performance access to sites like Netflix is going to push up the average cost. It's going to displace investment in building out basic access services into un or underserved communities, which is going to harm free speech values. You also have questions about uh, creating new edge services. And this is one of the hottest debates and most contested areas in the net neutrality discussion. Do things like paid prioritization, harm innovation and startups, or do they actually benefit innovation and startups? And you can tell the story both ways. You can say that ISPs, if they're able to charge startups for higher performance speed, that increases the startup cost, which reduces innovation and new businesses entering this area. Or you can say that uh, startups can't afford access to or to build out expensive content delivery network services that all the existing major players rely on and allowing ISPs to offer a paid prioritization service to those startups that need that sort of prioritization actually will facilitate entry and competition. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Travis, please respond to Gus's claims about how uh, net neutrality might harm competition and ultimately free speech values. And also, you spent this important time at the FCC in the Obama administration. Can you give particular examples of cases where you enforce network neutrality values that you think are important for our listeners to know about? Yeah, uh, excellent question, Jeff. Thank you. Um, on the response uh, to, to Gus, I do want to debunk the myth uh, that um, somehow since the FCC adopted the Obama-era 2015 open Internet rules, suddenly broadband investment has gone way down. That's just not true. There are a lot of theoretical uh, uh, potential arguments out there about harm from strong open Internet rules on investment, but it just hasn't proven to be true. We've had two years of data that shows that it's not the case. You know, you look at the financial filings of a number of these ISPs, and, and, and they say they're spending about 15% of their revenue on infrastructure investment. Um, 
that is a substantial amount. And and if this was what the FCC predicted would be the case back in 2015 when it adopted the rules that the boogeyman of a lack of infrastructure uh, investment from uh, adopting strong, clear, open Internet rules um, has would some has has proven not to be the case, and indeed for 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 many years. I mean, for decades, in fact, the wireless industry has been governed by Title II, the same you know basic fundamental principles that apply to uh, to the to, to, to wireless ISPs and to to ISPs. And during that time period, the wireless industry invested hundreds of billions, over four hundred billion, under similar rules to those adopted by the FCC in in 2015. So there is enough data over decades to show that strong rules of non-discrimination don't ultimately um, substantially reduce broadband or uh, infrastructure investment in telecom. As to specific examples, we've seen them. Uh, We've seen them in the United States, and we've seen them abroad. Uh, you know, it, it, it's looking right now like I will, uh, unfortunately, at least for, for the near future, be the only enforcer of, uh, of net neutrality um, that's been there. And we brought several cases um, uh, to enforce the, uh, the open Internet orders. Um, you know, we brought one case against AT&T in 2014. 2015, uh, in 2015, um, where AT&T had advertised uh, unlimited uh, data plans for its wireless customers. Um, And in fact, when AT&T first started rolling out uh, wireless data plans, it truly did have unlimited data plans. But after some number of years, uh, for a variety of reasons we won't go into here, uh, AT&T decided that it would put a cap, I think it was five gigabytes at the very beginning, on all unlimited customers, despite selling them unlimited data plans. So they would buy something called unlimited, and uh, they, they were grandfathered in, and then as soon as they used more than five gigabytes of data, AT&T would throttle them uh, down to speed so slow that uh, they couldn't even access the basic maps function or use, um, you know, FaceTime on a, uh, on, on a call. Um, we ended up uh, believing that, you know, bringing an action against them for violation of the Open Internet Order's transparency rule for being, uh, for engaging in uh, deceptive uh, uh, practices. Um, another case we brought was, involved, and we did a similar case against um, T-Mobile, a settlement uh, with T-Mobile in 2016. Uh, we brought another case involving Verizon where Verizon was, had, had engaged in tracking of, its, uh, all, of all its wireless customers' uh, Internet traffic. Um, they uh, had put in a unique identifying header that would allow them to see everything uh, that their, every website, application, or service that their uh, customers visited, and they didn't tell those customers anything um, about this. They didn't give them the ability to opt in uh, to this or even to opt out of it. Um, we ended up settling with uh, Verizon for over a million dollars uh, as a result of their failures to uh, be transparent. So I give you these two examples off the front end because here are scenarios where 
where the, the providers themselves aren't being transparent, and we're moving into a world where the only thing, the, the fundamental principles that, that uh, Chairman Pai wants to adhere to is one of transparency. And, and yet there are numerous examples of that. In Europe, the environment that we're moving to is, is, is one that is meant to look exactly like what Europe had from, say, 2009 or so to 2015. And they saw, you know, blocking of, uh, of websites, among other things. For example, Skype. Right, because a lot of these uh, the, the the ISPs are also phone companies, and they have an incentive for you to use the traditional voice service and not to displace that with voice over IP from uh, another provider. And so we saw in Europe that Skype, for example, um, was blocked. We've seen in the United States that there have been situations where, for example, Comcast blocked. Um, access uh, to HBO Go and other um, apps on PlayStations. Why? Because they didn't want you to access HBO through a PlayStation. They'd rather see you a- access it through the Xfinity app or through uh, cable. So there, there are real examples of consumer harm that have come from abuses of net neutrality principles. Many thanks for that. Uh, Gus, can you respond to those specific examples? Some of us are talking now on Skype, and uh, Travis gave that as an example of a service that was blocked. He also mentioned AT, uh, AT&T and T-Mobile. Uh, what's the response? I can respond to them. Uh, it would take quite a while to go through all the details, but uh, I uh, will generally respond to uh, uh, some of the specific examples. Um, and also, I need to speak about the investment question. Um, the general response, uh, before I get into any of the, the specific examples, is for the most part, the examples that Travis gives aren't of net neutrality violations. They're of what I would call ISPs behaving possibly badly. That's not what net neutrality is about. Net neutrality is about a more specific set of concerns. And one of the important things to understand about the entire net neutrality discussion is that for many, net neutrality is an instrumental idea towards the goal of regulating ISPs because we just don't like them or we just don't trust them. Now, the reality of uh, this market is it is not as competitive as many people would like. I think it would be fair to say it's not as competitive as most people would like. Um, And this raises a hard question about how do we approach problems in the market? Do we rely on imperfect competition or do we rely on regulation? And there are costs to both. The important thing to understand is When we're talking about net neutrality, we are talking about a specific set of concerns, and we don't want to drag things that are unrelated to those concerns into the parade of examples that we can use to uh, uh, justify a broader regulatory agenda. That's not to say we can't discuss that broader regulatory agenda, but we want to make sure that we're uh, making an apples-to-apples comparison when we're matching the concerns that we have with the regulatory responses. Um, I need to speak for a moment about the investment question. Um, uh, the latest data that we have, and I will uh, caveat this absolutely at the outset, that we only have two years of data since the 2015 order was adopted. It's not a large data set, but the best empirical analysis in analyses in my view of this data suggests that Investment by ISPs has decreased since the 2015 order was adopted. The studies, the uh, uh, 
proposed uh, restoring internet freedom order has, I think, a, uh, a very detailed, not everyone will be persuaded by it, but a very uh, a detailed discussion of these studies and also the primary study that shows uh, investment has increased. And I think it's a very good discussion. And when you uh, normalize the two study, the uh, different studies, those showing that investment has increased with those that show investment has decreased. You uh, make sure that there are apples to apples comparisons. The evidence seems to suggest that investment has decreased, not increased. And importantly, the prediction from the 2015 order wasn't merely that it would harm investment, but that it would increase investment. This was the virtuous circle theory. So if the data is tending to suggest that the investment has decreased, that suggests the underlying theory of the 2015 order was flawed. Now, there's another important discussion to be had here, which is how the courts are going to look at this data and these arguments. And it's the courts are going to take a very deferential approach to reviewing the agency's analysis, just like they did in the 2015 order. And they are almost certainly going to affirm the uh, uh, 20, the new order under the current FCC under the same principles of deference um, and uh, arbitrary and capriciousness review. And I would say that this is an area that we should all have a great deal of concern about. I think that the court was wrong, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals was wrong to be as deferential as it was to the 2015 order. And I look forward to the opponents of the new order going to the DC Circuit and making all the same arguments that I made uh, two years ago um, to explain why the uh, 2017 order is problematic. Uh, I think that it's great that we share a common uh, set of views uh, about uh, a concern over how deferential courts are going to be to the agency. Um, just a couple of very brief comments about uh, some of the examples Travis gave, and also the uh, BitTorrent example that uh, you had asked about earlier. Um, in the case of BitTorrent, Comcast famously was interrupting and resetting BitTorrent um, sessions that users had. And the common story here is BitTorrent is used to distribute a great deal of video, which competes with Comcast's own video services. The subsequent analysis and discussion shows that the users of BitTorrent were interfering with other users of Comcast's network. The way that the protocol works was making it difficult or impossible actually for uh, Comcast users to use voice over uh, IP protocols. So Comcast, in order to protect users' ability to use certain services, degraded performance of a service that was harming the network. The example of AT&T and Verizon, uh, these are both examples where they advertised one thing, unlimited service, and delivered something else. Under the uh, new order, the transparency rules are still going to be there. The uh, companies are still going to need to disclose what they're doing. And if they subsequently go and violate their promises, we have a range of consumer protection laws um, that are in place there. Um, so the AT&T case could easily be brought by the FTC. It would be facilitated by um, the transparency rule. The FCC could participate in that investigation. State attorneys general um, would be able to be involved with or bring their own investigations. So we still have these basic protections. Thanks so much for that. Travis, there are a number of points on the table and please respond to them. And then uh, Gus has raised the question of the legality of the FCC's ability to change its mind about net neutrality. 
Uh, he introduced this principle of uh, deference to uh, agencies and said that the Obama FCC asked for it when they introduced net neutrality in the first place, and now they're arguing against it. So as uh, deftly as you can, and this is a complicated topic, explain to us the tangled history of net neutrality b before the FCC and uh, how we got to where we are today. All right. There's a lot there. I will, I will try to uh, answer as deftly as possible. Let me start off by just saying, uh, starting off by agreeing with Gus that the examples that I gave of net neutrality harms are indeed ISPs behaving badly. But I think it's very clear that the examples that I gave involved harms to net neutrality. So we haven't discussed what the 2015 Open Internet Order did. But fundamentally, it put in place some bright-line rules. It said ISPs could not block access to, uh, to applications, websites, and services. We call that the no-blocking rule. It says that ISPs uh, can't charge uh, access fees to edge companies for access to ISP consumers. In other words, you, you know, no paid prioritization is kind of a, a term um, that we, uh, sorry, um, um, uh, that we that we talk about. Um, it can't throttle. It can't slow down some access to applications, websites, and services. The examples that I gave about Comcast blocking access to HBO Go is a clear blocking issue. Uh, the example uh, of um, AT&T um, throttling data, um, you know, raises throttling, and, and Gus suggests that the FTC could have brought this case, and indeed, the FTC did attempt to bring this case in the, in, in the Northern District of California back in 2014. And when the case went to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit held that the FTC did not have jurisdiction over AT&T because AT&T was a common carrier. Now, mind you, irrespective of what Chairman Pai does on December 14th and how the commission votes, AT&T will still be a common carrier because it offers voice services. Now, granted, the Ninth Circuit has since uh, decided to go to take the case on banc, and so we are, uh, they've had oral arguments on it. We're waiting on a final decision from the Ninth Circuit. But the, the decision we got from the Ninth Circuit was the FTC doesn't have jurisdiction, and it's, quite, you know, it's not clear what happens if the Ninth Circuit reaffirms that decision on banc and ultimately decides, yes, the FTC does not have jurisdiction over AT&T. It doesn't have jurisdiction over its direct TV product. And should a merger go through that DOJ just sued to block, it wouldn't have jurisdiction over any Time Warner content as well. But, you know, another example uh, that's there that's a clear violation is uh, AT&T's uh, practice of zero-rating direct TV. Here we found uh, that AT&T decided that for its wireless, uh, certain of its wireless customers, if they watched DirecTV on their mobile phone, then it wouldn't count towards their data cap. Whereas um, if you wanted to watch Netflix on the device, it would count towards your data clap. Clear favoritism of, of, of AT&T's product, DirecTV. Uh, this is a practice called zero rating, and um, 
in the prior administration, the FCC determined that that was uh, a violation of the net neutrality um, uh, rules. Um, you know, so th- these examples that were given are, in fact, I think, clear examples of violations of net neutrality um, in-, in spirit and in, in letter. Uh, in terms of uh, the other question that you asked, um, Jeff, about uh, the, the, uh, a, a future um, judicial review of uh, whatever Chairman Pai uh, and the Commission decide um, in December around net neutrality, I want to start off by saying, fundamentally, in my view, um, the biggest impediment to broadband investment in this country is the lack of certainty about the legal and regulatory regime that applies to it. And we, for over a decade now, have been going back and forth with trying to figure out how to handle net neutrality. Um, This is, uh, you know, in fact, one commissioner of, of the, um, at the FCC right now, I think Commissioner Clyburn, I think this will be the third time in her tenure that she will have voted on uh, how to respond to, uh, to net neutrality and what the rules um, should be. And um, the, the, the last time um, before, which, which gave rise to the 2015, um, the FCC adopted um, Basic rules in uh, in against blocking and throttling and transparency and other things in in 2009, um, and uh, the uh, when it went up to the D, but they didn't um, reclassify internet service providers as common carriers under Title II. Title I of the Communications Act um, previously had governed um, uh, Internet service providers, and it had classified them as an information service. And when it went up to uh, the uh, D.C. Circuit um, in a case, uh, Verizon, the Verizon case versus the FCC, the D.C. Circuit essentially said, look, um, you are trying to impose Title II-style common carrier obligations on Internet service providers, but you're refusing to reclassify them as information services. It essentially said if you want to put in place any meaningful um, uh, enforceable protections against uh, net neutrality abuses, uh, you have to, you, you, you can't do it under Title I. And that's what in 20, that, that decision came down in January of 2014. And when they struck down the FCC's prior uh, net neutrality rules, except for the transparency rule, that was the only one that was allowed to, to stay, um, the Chairman Wheeler started a new, then chairman of the FCC, started a new process to put in place uh, net neutrality rules. And that resulted in the 2015 open Internet order that put in place the no blocking, no throttling, no paid prioritization rules, that also put in place a general conduct standard, and that most importantly from a legal standpoint, put in place the fundamental principle, or not a fundamental, put in place that uh, Internet service providers should be treated under Title II of the Communications Act as common carriers rather than information uh, services under Title I. I think that upon review, there are a number of different areas that uh, the FCC's current draft or seems to be subject to scrutiny. 
um, you know, um, you know, in, in terms of their arbitrary and sort of capricious review. The biggest one, I think, is the fact that there have been 20 million public comments, more than 20 million, that have been filed in this proceeding. That does not happen in government often. And yet it seems as if the same proposal that Chairman Pai floated in, 20, in, in earlier this year is the same proposal he still got today, despite those 20 million comments, and despite them largely, almost overwhelmingly, being supportive of the 2015 Open Internet Order. Indeed, there was a recent poll that found that 77% of American consumers support the 2015 Open Internet Order. And that's not 77% of Democrats. That's 77% of the country, which means you're, giving, you're getting overwhelming numbers of both Democrats and Republicans who are, are, are supportive um, there. I think he's also likely to run into some trouble on uh, the preemption issue. So one of the current uh, proposals would be to preempt all states from imposing any substantive uh, net neutrality rules. Uh, this is something that happened after uh, earlier this year, uh, Congress reversed the FCC's broadband privacy regulations, uh, which would have prevented um, ISPs from, you know, for example, selling customer data without consent. Um, after that happened, 20-plus states introduced legislation, you know, red and blue states, introduced legislation to put in place essentially the same FCC broadband privacy rules at the state level. And here you have the FCC trying to preempt that on net neutrality. The, the reason I think it's susceptible to some substantial risk is that the FCC, at the same time as it's stepping back and saying, we're not going to regulate, is also trying to, at that time, prevent the state's from doing any kind of regulation. That, that's a hard, a hard case to make on preemption. Thank you for all that. Okay, lots on the table. Gus, if you could just as uh, simply and directly as possible identify the major legal issues that will be raised in challenges to the new uh, net neutrality position and your response to them. Travis has already talked about uh, the comments that have been filed by the public, the question of whether the FCC has the ability to preempt uh, competing state regulation, and you've raised the question of how much deference an agency should get in interpreting its own regulations. So take us through the main points as clearly as you can. Absolutely. Um, to start, just uh, uh, two very brief comments uh, on the Ninth Circuit uh, uh, issue. I absolutely agree, and there's broad agreement that the Ninth Circuit's uh, opinion is problematic. I think there is um, a great deal of assumption that it will either be reversed by the by the court on banc or by Congress. But I agree that that is a uh, important issue that is out there, and I will also agree that this entire issue needs to be put to bed. Um, the industry needs it. Consumers need it. Um, <laughs> Those of us working in the field need this uh, issue not to be with us for another several years. And the only way that that's going to happen is if Congress steps in um, and acts. Um, in terms of the uh, major legal issues that are uh, going to be queued up, um, the biggest issue is going to be the question of Title I versus Title II classification, that is whether the FCC can uh, what I call de-reclassify broadband internet access service from a Title I information service to a Title II telecommunication service back to a Title I information service. Um, the important issues here 
First, in uh, uh, the Brand X case, the Supreme Court said that classification as a Title I information service is permissible. The D.C. Circuit has subsequently said that classification as a Title II telecommunication service is permissible. The arguments that we're going to see are whether the facts on the ground have changed sufficiently in the last 15 years such that classification as a Title I service is no longer a uh, reasonable way to interpret the language of the Communications Act. And we're also going to see um, arguments that the FCC cannot keep flip-flopping its definition, that that is arbitrary and capricious, that that is otherwise problematic or demonstrates some infirmities in the agency's reasoning. Um, I think both of those arguments are going to lose. Um, the uh, courts have a long history of being exceptionally deferential on questions such as these. So in terms of is Title I a permissible classification, I think the answer will still be yes. In terms of the flip-flopping uh, uh, issue, uh, standard principles of deference and arbitrary capriciousness review say that courts, that agencies can change their interpretations. The fact that they're changing an interpretation doesn't mean that the uh, prior uh, uh, interpretation needs to be more strongly disavowed or the new interpretation needs to be more strongly uh, supported. And in fact, the Supreme Court has expressly said that a change of administration is a good reason for an agency to reevaluate and change its policies. So uh, I think that those issues are not going to carry the day. And again, I will say I am not a fan of these broad principles of deference. I would love to see uh, agencies starting to lose on these issues and the courts starting to say, hey, you know, your analysis here is really questionable. We are going to, we're not going to let you get away with it. Um, the interesting question in this case is if the DC Circuit or ultimately the Supreme Court does decide to say, you know what, we need to start pushing you FCC to think more seriously and rigorously and honestly about these issues. How is it going to do that with all, all, without also reviewing the 2015 order? The issues are the exact same, um, and I, I think there's an interesting procedural uh, question coming up there. Uh, on the questions of the comments and preemption, um, the, uh, the preemption issue I think is a really interesting one. Um, uh, I agree that it is a uh, challenging legal argument. Uh, that said, there is precedent to support uh, the idea that uh, a decision to not regulate can preempt uh, states' decisions to regulate. In effect, a decision not to regulate is in fact a regulatory decision. Um, so if the agency has the ability to preempt otherwise, the fact that it is a deregulatory uh, uh, rule being put in place doesn't undermine the uh, preemption argument. On the issue of comment, the comments, this is in many ways the most interesting issue out there um, because it brings us to really hard fundamental questions about the nature of the administrative state um, in the modern information era. The reason that we have independent agencies is to insulate them from uh, political pressures such as these, to insulate them from uh, comment campaigns. The purpose of notice and comment isn't to conduct a referendum, it's to collect informed 
opinions on the substance of orders. And the overwhelming majority of these comments offered nothing along those lines. It's not the FCC's position to be uh, uh, conducting a, a, a democratic referendum on what its rule should be. That would be a congressional uh, um, uh, action. But the fact these comments are out there, even if they don't relate to or inform the legal analysis or outcome, and I don't think they should, raises some really interesting and challenging questions for the nature of regulation, the nature of the administrative state, the role of Congress, the role of agencies um, in uh, uh, proceedings such as this. And I think that that's completely unrelated to the topic of net neutrality, where a lot of really interesting and uh, uh, exciting discussion needs to occur. Uh, wonderful. Well, uh, Travis, as, as Gus says, this is a fascinating question about how much administrative agencies should be insulated from populist or popular pressures. And what's your response to his claim that the very purpose of the administrative state set up by progressive heroes such as Louis Brandeis and, and others was to ensure that experts could rule based on reason rather than populist passion? And then, as clearly as you can, because it really is a complicated question, the final response to this question of whether it's permissible for the FCC to introduce net neutrality under Title II of the Communications Act, which set forth regulations that common carriers have to follow in the public interest and uh, and the, the amount of deference that the, the Trump agency should get uh, when it says that uh, it's not reasonable to regulate under Title II. The, the administrative state um, is fundamentally built on the principle that there should be notice and an opportunity for the public to comment on rulemakings. That's a, a basic fundamental principle, that there is a role in the, for the public to have in commenting on a proceeding. Now, it's true that in the information age, when you open up any uh, docket uh, to uh, public commentary, that not every comment is uh, well-reasoned and helpful. Um, just review the comment section on most news articles uh, that are out there, and you'll, you'll see um, how uh, sometimes public comment is not necessarily um, uh, productive. Um, here, however, there are, you know, numerous, um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of comments that are productive. And Me Too comments do help understand the persuasive views of the public and what they think is important. Obviously, uh, we don't want any um, rulemaking in an administrative agency to be subject to a vote of the public, um, but uh, they are entitled to air their views, and those views are required to be considered. Uh, there is, in looking at the draft as currently proposed by Chairman Pai, uh, of the, you know, I think he calls it the restoring uh, Internet freedom um, uh, item, it's apparent that they have not meaningfully tried to grapple with the many millions of comments that they received, especially as they're making a broad uh, uh, change in policy. And to be clear, this isn't just a change in policy 
from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. There is widespread bipartisan support for net neutrality that has come between Republican, come from Republican and Democratic FCCs for, you know, for many, many years at this point. And we're now making a large-scale reversal um, there. Uh, you know, I think uh, on the question of preemption, just to sort of add one additional fact to uh, what Gus mentioned, um, it bears stating that when the FCC adopted the 2015 Open Internet Order, on the same day, it actually also preempted two states' um, uh, laws uh, prohibiting uh, municipal broadband. And at that time, Chairman Pai and then uh, and Commissioner Mike O'Reilly raised a substantial criticism about the ability of the FCC to have the authority to preempt state laws involving uh, broadband. It, I find it quite ironic that we, and, and I should say, that issue went to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit did ultimately agree with uh, Chairman Pai, and then Commissioner Pai, and, and then Commissioner uh, O'Reilly. I find it quite ironic that a couple years later, we now find um, at least those two commissioners and potentially uh, Commissioner Carp ready to take a vote where the FCC is exercising less authority but somehow seems to have more authority uh, to preempt than they saw just um, just a couple years uh, ago. And on the issue of Title One versus Title Two, uh, obviously the FCC has the discretion, uh, when based upon reason, to change its position from regulating uh, ISPs as common carriers uh, rather than information services. And frankly, over the course of uh, our, you know, sorry, history uh, in communications in the United States, there have been changes where a service has gone between um, various different uh, titles um, within, within the Act. Uh, the challenge here will be uh, presenting the reasoning for this and also being able to justify a sort of enhanced transparency rule under Title I um, as an information service. I suspect that uh, Gus is right that ultimately uh, the court would conclude that it is okay for uh, that there isn't a legal impediment to reclassifying uh, ISPs as information services per se, but I suspect that they will find out that the process that was used here and the explanation or the rationale that was provided by the uh, majority at the FCC does not uh, survive arbitrary and capricious review. Thank you so much for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this fascinating debate. And uh, uh, Gus, the first one is to you. Why is the Trump FCC correct, in your view, to repeal the Obama FCC's net neutrality rules? And how will the internet be different as a result? So do I have to? <laughs> um, I, or should I ask uh, in only three minutes? Uh, so, OK. Um, 
the basic issue here is that the FCC's statutory framework is unclear. That is, how should the agency be approaching internet service providers and internet service? Congress hasn't given the agency really clear guidance on the approach that it should take. And the agency has been struggling with this as a result for going on uh, 15 years. These issues are really important. Um, as uh, we, we've heard, the internet is the modern public sphere. This is the most important network in the history of humankind. These are questions of vast economic and political significance and importance. The industry, consumers, practitioners, everyone in this area needs certainty. And the only way that we're going to get that certainty is if Congress steps in and provides it to us. That's the forum by which we can get public concern, public comments incorporated into um, what the agency should be doing. It's the approach that the courts should probably take. One thing that we haven't mentioned is this idea of the major questions doctrine. This is one of the arguments that um, a number of people, myself included, in the prior cases um, challenging the 2015 order have made, which is basically that this is such an important issue that it's not something that the agency should be deciding on its own. We need to kick this back to Congress in order to get guidance. How will things look differently going forward? I don't think that they will look differently going forward under either set of rules. Um, the reality is that we have so many uh, public interest advocates and so many watchdogs and so many people who hate their ISPs and are watching them uh, uh, with eagle eyes that if ISPs do start to engage in problematic behavior, it's going to be a political nightmare. It's going to be a public relations nightmare. The political economy of this entire ecosystem is strongly weighed against ISPs. It's strongly weighed in favor of the edge providers and content providers against distributors. Um, so I think that regardless of the rules, we're going to basically see the same level of behavior by the ISPs. On the margin, I think that having strong net neutrality rules that are enforced by the FCC, the bright line rule, such as we saw in the 2015 order, decrease investment. I think that they add to uncertainty about what ISPs can do. Um, they create concern among consumers. They make consumers believe and dis that ISPs do do problematic things more than they actually do. And I think that that is bad for the industry, bad for the edge providers, and frankly, bad for public discourse. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Travis, last word to you. Why is the Trump FCC wrong, in your view, to repeal the Obama FCC's net neutrality rules? And how will the internet be different as a result? As I mentioned earlier, the fundamental impediment to broadband investment in this country is a lack of certainty about the legal and regulatory regime that governs broadband. We had essentially reached certainty. That is, in 2015, the FCC adopted strong, open Internet net neutrality rules. The industry challenged those rules. It went all the way to the D.C. Circuit, which again, which this time, for the first time, affirmed the FCC's authority to impose the Title II rules on broadband. 
that went, there was a request for it to be considered, reconsidered en banc. The court declined to do so, and the industry decided not to proceed to the U.S. Supreme Court. It should have been over then. What we are about to have is another two or three years of legal uncertainty. No matter what the F- if the FCC does anything on December fourteenth, because as you heard the discussion back and forth between Gus and me, it's clear that there are some legal issues raised by it. Whether or not at the end of the day the FCC ultimately prevails, there's no question that there's legal exposure here, and that exposure is going to end up in the D.C. Circuit and probably ultimately the Supreme Court, again, in various forms of litigation over the next uh, couple years. And that is going to depress broadband investment because there is no more certainty as to what the rules of the game are. Replacing it with an FTC-led regime further adds to the uncertainty because, as you know, the FTC does not have rulemaking authority. The FTC acts after the fact. So you don't know the violation uh, or their interpretation in all light of of what you're doing until after you've been um, you've been investigated uh, by the FTC. Furthermore, we find ourselves in a situation where we don't know that the FTC even will be able to have jurisdiction over these ISPs, depending upon how the Ninth Circuit rules. And frankly, and with all due respect to the Federal Trade Commission, it is an agency that I dearly respect. Uh, that I have worked with uh, or worked with for years uh, when I was in state and federal government. But when it comes to understanding networks, when it comes to understanding telecommunications, the FTC doesn't have the expertise to be the sole enforcer of net neutrality. Yes, the FTC has great experience in privacy and expertise in fraud. But when it comes to things like throttling, when it comes to practices like zero rating, they don't have engineers on their staff like the FCC does. They don't have the intimate familiarity with the way networks work, and moreover, the legal and regulatory power behind them to impose rules when there's wide scale uh, when there's wide scale problems. You know, the FCC's uh, 2015 Open Internet Rules were clear. They were very simple. No blocking, right? We may, you cannot block access to a website application or service. You can't charge access fees to online companies for access to ISP consumers. You can't enter deals to put favored companies in fast lanes. You can't favor some applications or websites over others, a practice known as zero, that, that a practice known as zero rating. These were pretty clear rules that are now being taken off the books to put in place a standard that allows your ISP to decide whatever rules they want to play by. If they disclose merely that they block websites, applications, and services, or they throttle them, uh, or they engage in paid prioritization, there's nothing the FTC can do to stop that. It leaves consumers to the predilections and whims and financial spirits of their ISPs. And that is a world that many people should be afraid of, especially um, 
smaller Internet companies and startups and entrepreneurs, small businesses that are trying to compete in the 21st century digital economy. Thank you so much, Travis LeBlanc and Gus Hurwitz, for a stimulating, intense, and substantive discussion of this really important question of net neutrality and for educating our listeners. Travis, Gus, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. Also, please, We the People listeners, be sure to rate We the People on iTunes and other platforms. It helps others learn about what we do. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the engagement, passion for lifelong learning, dedication, and insistence on cultivating your faculties of reason and reasoning together that all of you demonstrate every week when you tune in and learn with me about the best arguments on all sides of the fundamental constitutional issues that face our country. Please join the National Constitution Center to signal your engagement and to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.